Please join me as we read from God's Word. Turn to um, Romans 8, verses 18 through 28. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of God. And we know that God works all things together for our good to those who love God. Really? I mean, is that true? Hmm. Say, of course it is. Just look around. We live in the United States. Look at God's hand of blessing on us because of our Christian heritage. We have thrown Romans 8.28 around in our country and Christian circles forever. It's become like a mantra because things have been good. But what about when things aren't? Is it still true? Because I'm not sure if you have noticed, but things have not been so good lately. Nationally, we've been embroiled in a war for, for decades, draining our, natural, uh, our national resources and our, our children's blood. We, we become perhaps so callous to the loss of life in this ongoing conflict that we hardly notice six last week. After all, people have been gunned down right here in our own schools and temples and movie theaters. Where is, where is God in all that? Working all things together for good. 
We're in one of the worst economic crises in our country's history, comes close to rivaling the Great Depression. We're in a national drought and full of good news this morning. Whether you buy into this whole global warming thing or not, July was the hottest uh, month on record, eclipsing one set in the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. As a result, food prices are on the rise, gas prices are up, but then, of course, jobs are down. Home values are down and foreclosures are up. Consumer debt is up, spending is out of control, we're just following our national leaders. And you say, well, you know, all that's, be, all that's because we've been in the worst moral and spiritual decline in our country's history. Okay, maybe there is some co- correspondence there. Let, let's bring it a little closer to home, shall we? You'd have to be asleep over the past few months or maybe a couple of years to not know of some rather tragic events that have taken place right here in our own community. There have been some heart-rending tragedies. We could call them untimely deaths. Some have happened within the Christian community. I will not recount those because some have happened within or closely connected to our own church family. And so where is God in all that? Working all things together for our good. We've seen those national economic challenges hit people in our own church. Maybe the person sitting right across the aisle from you got that half-finished building in front. We've seen sickness, disease, cancer, unprecedented, unleashed like a flood. We've experienced divorce. Some of you are in the middle of it right now through no fault of your own. We've seen some awful relational challenges emerge. The result of all that, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual duress. Spend a week with me in my office. Where is God in all that? We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Really? I want to remind you that that verse comes after Paul talked about our present sufferings, all creation groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, and the Holy Spirit interceding for us when we don't have either the the words or, or the energy to know what to say. I want to gently remind you that Paul does not say that all things are good but all things work together for good. I've spent weeks in my office. It's where I live. And so I know that some of you are reeling. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You wonder whether or not whether God really is sovereign, that means He's in control. And, and if He's in control, I mean, is He really good? If God, is God at work 
for good in the midst of national calamity. Forget that, my personal story. Maybe you're beginning to identify with Rabbi Kushner. If, if, if God is all-powerful and good, then why do bad things happen to good people? It's the title of his book. And he concludes, this rabbi, God can't be both. Can't, can't be. So he's good, but he's not all-powerful. God's not in control. Things, look around. Things are spinning out of control. So maybe you're wondering this morning, is God good? Maybe, maybe you're wondering if he's lost sight of you. Finished our study in Ephesians about a month ago. Launched into a four-week series on life groups. I, I want you to know that I do believe that uh, living life together is one of the best ways that we can face the challenges of, of life. We've had over 400 adults, I'm excited to say that, sign up on over 30 life groups. It's not too late. It's not too late for you. Here's what I want you to know. You decide to live life together, the problems aren't going to go away. So, 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 so what now? As I looked around and prayed, I decided to do something a little bit different. We're going to spend the next few weeks, I, I'm not really sure how long, studying the life of, of Joseph. And I, and I landed there for several, for several reasons. First, if, if you have been with us, you know that we have been swimming in some pretty deep um, doctrinal waters for some time. I mean, come on. And we have studied together through Galatians and then Romans and then Ephesians. I don't know about you, but I need to take a breath. Narrative or, or story is a little bit easier to digest. I think we need a bit, of a, a bit of a break. Secondly, I wanted you to know that I know that there is an Old Testament. <laughs> and thirdly, our country and our community and, and our church and face some serious sufferings, some, some trials, some challenges. So the questions naturally emerge. Is God in control? If so, how can he be good? Is it true that all things work together for, for our good and his glory? I want to encourage you in whatever circumstances that you might find yourself this morning, God is good. He's not fallen asleep. He knows what he's doing. He knows right where you are. And I want you to know that he loves you. And his overriding purposes for his glory and your good will be carried out. I don't know how some of you have made it through some of the things that you're facing, apart from the presence of Christ. Christ. 
We begin today a study of one of the most fascinating lives in Scripture. It's the life of Joseph. The story begins in Genesis 37 and actually will take us all the way to the end of, of that particular book. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have studied through the life of Joseph before? Any, anybody at all? Okay, a few of you. If I were to ask you, you don't have to say that loud. If I were to ask you what is the theme of the story, what, what would you say? You look at the front of the worship folder that Steve put uh, together for us. He does this all the time. He, he creates all of this and does a fantastic job. I, I really like this one. At the very center of that, it says, if it's all God, then it's all good. I, I, I like that. And, and I like this folder. If, if you get bored, you can color it. We put it in picture form so BJ can keep up with us. One of the things that we have to keep in mind as we jump into the story of Joseph is that it is really the story of God. Did you hear what I said? History is really his story. I, I know that sounds a bit tacky, but it's true. All of history from beginning to end is about God, his purposes, and his good interactions with humankind. In fact, all of the Bible is really the story of God. Listen to me. The Bible is not a history book. It is not a science book. It is not an archaeology book. It is not a um, geography book. It's not a geology book. It is not an ethics book to provide some behavior modification. You go to the Bible for any one of those things and you'll likely be disappointed. The Bible is first and foremost a theology book to teach us about God and our relationship to Him. It is a book that tells us, I want you to get this, it is a book that tells us how our stories fit into God's big, grand story and not the other way around. This is where we mess up. We have this idea that I've got to somehow fit a big God into my little story. With that in mind, let me, take, let, me, let me just take our time this morning. This is all I'm going to do this morning. I've got a few more things to say. To remind you of the story of God to this point uh, in history, of His story. We typically think, I think rightly, of dividing the Bible, obviously, between Old and New Testaments. I think that's a good way. We, we, we perhaps know that the, 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 the title, Old and New Testament, would be better called Old and New Covenant, because God has always dealt with people in terms of covenant. Covenant is a relationship, agreement between two or more persons, uh, and, and that agreement is, is spelled out, uh, the various responsibilities of the persons in that covenantal arrangement. In the Old Testament, while it lists several covenants, it kind of seems to focus in on that, that old covenant. We call it the Mosaic Covenant or the law. We remember that. We saw that in Galatians and, and Romans. God gave 
Moses, the law, summed up in the Ten Commandments. These commandments were very carefully written on two tablets of stone and spelled out what God expected of humankind in this covenantal arrangement. Listen, I'm going to be your God. You'll be my people. I'll take care of you, but here's what you have to do. Uh, okay, I'm God. Uh, no other gods, all right? Get that. That's first. In fact, I don't even want you to make any idols or graven images. And I don't want you to take my name in, in vain, and I want you to honor my day, the Sabbath day. And I want you to honor your father and mother and some things that you can't do, all right? You, you, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting, all right? That's the, that's the expectation. Of course, we know that throughout time, people have been totally incapable of keeping those commands. Listen, every one of you in one way or another has broken every one of these commands. And so God promised a new covenant uh, to come one in which He would write His law on our hearts. He would give us His Spirit by whom we would be able to keep His, his good commands. Well, in the midst of all of that, there is still this foreboding fact that none of us have been able to keep this good law, and it's made us all guilty before God. And so, so God, in the midst of giving these commands, also gave a sacrificial system to atone for sin. But I want you to understand that that sacrificial system was always just a symbol. It was a shadow of the ultimate perfect sacrifice to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ through His gospel. So, so Jesus came to bring that new covenant. All of that, that's good. That's a good framework to understand the story of the Bible. We break it up in old and new covenants or Old and New Testaments. But I want to suggest this morning that there's another way that still recognizes these two covenants, but helps us understand the story of God and helps us to understand that this story has always been His plan through eternity. He had this in mind. You see, in the beginning, we know God created the heavens and the earth. Six successive days, He created all that we see and, and all that we know and, and all that we're still in the process of discovering. And at the end of those days, He, he took a look around and He said, man, this is, this is really good. Who did He say it to? I, probably they said it to each other. Jesus, that light thing was really good. Of course, we also know that on the sixth day, He created man and woman, humankind, gave them the responsibility of caring for God's creation on the earth at least, specifically placed them in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep that. Let's start right there. He gave them freedom. They could eat of all of the garden's produce. Well, with one notable exception, they could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know, of course, Genesis 3, that they did. And they introduced sin into God's very good creation, into God's story, and the rest of the story is God working to bring about redemption and recreation, buying back, recreating, and restoring all that we throughout time have messed up. And it actually takes them until the last two chapters of the book to do it. In Revelation 21 and 22, we'll come back to that. And right about then, you got nervous. You said, wait, did he just say, are we going to like go? Bear with me. 
First two chapters of the story, Genesis 1 and 2, really, really good. God even said it was good. But then we mess it up. In chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis, humankind messes up royally in three very specific ways. First, of course, is the fall. They, they ate of the forbidden fruit. God curses the earth and curses humanity. But even in the midst of that cursing, God gave a promise. He said that, that, that there would come a seed of the woman who is going to come and make all things right. The seed of the woman, the serpent, will bruise his heel, but, but he will crush the serpent's head. We know that God was speaking of his son who would be born of a woman, Galatians, come at just the right time, be wrapped in human flesh, live a perfect life, be crucified to bear our sins in his perfect body. He would be raised again the third day, crushing the serpent's head in the process. So, first failure of humankind, Genesis 3. We call it the fall. The second came three chapters later, Genesis 6 to 9, where we, where we read about the flood. Human kind continued to grow in evil. In fact, we read that every thought and intent of his heart was evil continually. And so God said, enough is enough, sent a flood to destroy humanity. Well, he preserved the human race through Noah and, and, and his wife and Noah's sons and their three wives, and he, in, a, in essence, started over. But it didn't take long after they came off the ark to mess it up again. Noah plant, plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and endures some shameful abuses from one of, his son, one of his sons. Things continue to get worse. Humankind finally decides, let, let, let's do this on our own. All right. Let, let's, reach, let's reach heaven our own way and worship a God of our own making. And so they, they build, a, it's called a ziggurat, a, a temple, uh, to, reach, to reach the heavens. And God came down and, and, and confused their languages so they could not work together any longer in this idolatrous enterprise. We call that the Tower of Babel. It's the third major problem in Genesis 1 to 11. First 11 chapters, three significant failures of humanity, and we arrive then at the wonderful and glorious chapter 12, and God says, listen, since you can't seem to get this right, I will. I will step into the pages of human history, which is really my story anyway, and I will work to bring about the redemption and recreation and restoration of this rebellious, sinful humanity. It starts by, by calling Abram, a man from Mesopotamia to, to leave his country and his family to make his way west to a land that he would show him, and not only that he would show him, that he would give him. Now, you need to understand that there is very solid biblical evidence that Abram was not a worshiper of the true God. He could have been involved in building the tower. He, he, he worshiped the false deities of, of those around him in Ur of the Chaldees. We read about that in Joshua 24. But, but, but God, in his marvelous, unmerited grace, called Abraham. He says, go, I'm going to bless you. We, we, we saw that last week. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, Abraham, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We, we, we saw 
that God meant to bring a, well, actually both the, the written Word of God and the Son of God, uh, the Savior of the world through this specific nation. And God actually spends the rest of the Old Testament um, building this people through whom the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, would come. Yeah, along the way, He gave them that Mosaic covenant we call the Old Covenant to highlight their need of the Savior. Remember that, Galatians and, and Romans? Uh, uh, Paul will tell us that the law was given as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, to to expose our sin, to crush us, and to drive us to the only rescue. Savior comes. His name is Jesus. He brings the new covenant by which people are redeemed, sins forgiven. And the rest of the New Testament, see, I I told you we'd we'd make our way quickly. The rest of the story uh, is how this new covenant people is established. We, we call that the church, and how this new covenant people called the church is supposed to live. And we read the rest of the story, history, which will lead us to the last two chapters of the book, recreation, when everything will be made right. You see, you have to understand that the first two chapters and the last two chapters of the book form kind of a bookend. A lot of similarities between those two chapters. Everything else in the middle is God bringing us from the first two chapters to the last two chapters. So I want you to catch that. After three significant failures, God shows up and calls Abraham. Since you can't do this, I will. Through you and through your descendants. Through a, well, through a specific descendant. After the call of, uh, 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 of and promises to Abraham, God established a covenant with Abraham. We read about it in Genesis chapter 15. This is really, really important. Genesis chapter 15 says this. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, now, now catch this, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. That's going to happen. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you're going to go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age, 175, I think. Uh, Then in the fourth generation, 400 years, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. We'll come back to that. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. That represents the presence of God, which passed between the pieces, those pieces of animal that that Abraham had divided per God's instruction. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. The land plays uh, a very predominant place uh, throughout the Old Testament, from the river Egypt, all the way to the great river Euphrates. Now, you need to understand that before these specific verses, um, God promised to make a great nation of Abraham, that his descendants would become as, become as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. So what we have in the rest of the book of Genesis is God fulfilling those specific promises. All through the story, as we read the book of Genesis, there are all kinds of threats to the, to, the, to the fulfillment of this promise. There are all kinds of challenges. 
which could upset the plan. And each time, God intervenes to make sure that the plan is carried out. I'm not going to go through those um, time by time, but the author of, of, of Genesis, Moses, he gives us a literary masterpiece. We're so familiar with the story that we miss it. I encourage you to read the story. Read it this week in preparation for jumping into the life of, of Joseph. It's a literary masterpiece where we're sitting on the edge of our seats going, the promise is in jeopardy. And God steps in to fix it. And so God gives Abraham a son, a, a specific son, not not Ishmael. I listen. It's going to be from your, from your wife, Sarah. His name's Isaac. From Isaac comes Jacob and, and Esau. But, but, but God says, listen, the promised line is not going to be from the older. It's not going to be from Esau. It's going to be from, it's going to be from Jacob. And all that then brings us to, well, to our story. What is the primary purpose of the story of Joseph? It is to get Jacob and his family down to Egypt, just like God said, where they will spend 400 years being made into a great nation. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to read about some great characters, namely Joseph and, and also Judah. They're, they're, they're great character studies. But if we approach this text as a character study, learning some, some great things about some great men, we will miss the main point. The main point that in the midst of struggle and trial, when it seems that God is not good, when it seems that God is not in control, we will find Him working behind the scenes, pulling all of the strings to bring about His purposes. And I, I, I will suggest through our time in this story that God, listen, is still good and He is still faithfully fulfilling his promises to and through us. Let me give you some support for this idea uh, that the story of Joseph is really the story of Jacob, which is really the story of, of God and him fulfilling his perfect plan. First, look at Genesis chapter 37. I'll put it on the screen. Verse 2. We're not going to get to Genesis 37 today. We'll save that for next week. But what does it say? These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Yeah, the next word is Joseph, but this is about Jacob. You see, Joseph is sent as a forerunner to get this family safely to Egypt. Now, you might be interested to know, I was interested to know, that, that Moses organized this book of Genesis around 10 similar statements. I'm not going to take the time to read all of them. This is the account of. This is a very orderly arrangement. And the 10th one is actually the account of Jacob's line. And it's going to talk about getting Jacob and his 12 sons down to Egypt, starting with Joseph. I want you to understand that God is using Joseph to get something very specific done. You see, secondly, even Joseph realizes what his own personal life is all about. Genesis chapter 45, he says, we read this, then Joseph said to his brothers, please, please come closer to me. We'll find out what's happening here. And they, and they came closer and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Don't be grieved, angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you 
to preserve life. This was an awful thing that had happened to Joseph, we're going to find, and God did it. Yeah. Famine's been in the land two years. There's going to be five more years. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. God is working his plan in the midst of some rather significant personal trials. See, it's not about your story. It's about his. Third, God is present. Uh, While God is present through the entire story, you might be interested to know that he only speaks one time. Genesis 37 to 50, he speaks one time. Genesis 46, he's speaking to Jacob. He's getting ready to go down to Egypt. And he says, listen, I'm God. The God of your father, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Jacob, I'm in control. I'm fulfilling my plan. I'm taking care of my story. I'm doing what I told your grandfather I was going to do. I'm going to take you to Egypt. That begs another question. Why was it necessary for Jacob and his family to go to Egypt anyway? Came up with four reasons. First, we see in the passage that we just read that it was God's intention to make a great nation of them there. Second, it was the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham way back in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15, that they would be enslaved for 400 years. Genesis 37 to 15. 50 and launching us into the book of Exodus is the fulfillment of that plan. God knew what he was doing. Third, it was because the sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. Remember reading that? Amorites, they were the, this was a general term to use of the, speak of the inhabitants of the land of, of Canaan. And God is going to bring judgment on this, these idolatrous people, but it wasn't yet time. He's going to use Joshua and the children of Israel to bring that judgment, but it wasn't time because, you see, he's a patient God. Fourth, I believe he took them there to separate this fledgling new nation from the pagan influences, the pagan nations around them. Why do I say that? It's strengthened by two very awful stories that take place about this time. One is the story of Dinah and and the Shechemites. We read about that in chapter 34. We're not going to look at that. If you want to, well, since you're going to read from Genesis 1 to 36, you'll read uh, uh, chapter 34 uh, about this Saturday. And the other is the story of Judah and Tamar that takes place in chapter 38. They're both just kind of awful stories, but they both point to the need of being separated from these ungodly nations in which they found themselves. So, all of that is to say, as we look at the story of Joseph, while we will be tempted to focus too much on Joseph, I want us to make sure that we keep our focus on the primary actor, God. We can become enamored with Joseph's character. Perhaps we should, but we must not forget that God is fulfilling his purposes and his plans there. He is bringing about his intended 
purposes, faithfully fulfilling the promises that he had made to Abraham years before. He will take them down to Egypt. He will protect them there. He will make a great nation of them there. He is he was working then. I want to suggest that he is working today for our good and for his glorious plan, no matter what your life circumstances might be. I do acknowledge that Joseph was a great man. We're going to learn a lot about his character, especially um, facing trial, fire, how, how to face difficulties, and how God superintends all that, all that happens. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is, is, is preaching his very fiery sermon to the Sanhedrin that's going to end up getting him um, stoned, and, and, he, and he sums up Joseph's life well. Now, you might be interested to know as I say that, that, that there are only four times in the New Testament that, that, that Joseph's name appears, f four times. You might be interested to know that there is more recorded in the Old Testament about what Joseph said. In other words, more of what Joseph said was recorded than any other Old Testament character. And yet, he is not quoted one time in the New Testament. You might also be interested to know that Jesus never refers to Joseph. But he was an important character. And, and Stephen sums up his life well in, in Acts chapter 7 with these words. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. There you go. I, I just preached the whole series right there. Yet God was with him. One commentator I have says this, the story of Joseph is remarkable proof of the quiet operation of divine providence overruling evil and leading at length to the complete victory of truth and righteousness. I don't know what you're facing right now. I know what some of you are facing. I, I, I don't know what your heart's cry is. I don't know the, the challenge and the, and the trial that it has brought to some of you. I, I am only on the outside looking in. I can only imagine some of your pain, some of your sorrow. I can only imagine some of your questions. Is, is, is God here? If He's here, is He in control? And, and if He's in control, is He, is he good? My desire through our time together in this study is to convince you of those truths. Let's stand for prayer.